Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio, or in this case, virtually through the internet. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Teachers aiming to integrate discussions of social issues like racism, power differentials, and social crises related to gun violence are often confronted with the realities of the Common Core. How can classrooms become vibrant places of discussion while still meeting standards for learning outcomes? Today, we'll be discussing strategies for synchronizing the topics of, that students want to confront with their, within their literary fiction and nonfiction readings that meet those core standards. My guests today are Elizabeth James and Bill James. Both of them are public high school teachers in Stockton, California. I believe English, am I correct in, in yes. the discipline? Good, okay. They are authors of A Sea of Troubles, Pairing Literary and Informational Texts to Address Social Inequalities, which is a 2021 book published by Rowan Littlefield. I wanna welcome both of you to the podcast. Thank you for giving me your time this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to start, um, before we get into the substance of this very practical and useful book, um, the listeners of this podcast tend to be in three clumps. We have a lot of K-12 or pre-K-12 teachers. We have a lot of higher ed people that listen to it, and we have a lot of parents. I think most people have heard the phrase common core, but I think before we start talking about the extremely practical nature of what it is that you all put together, I wondered if one of you could just give sort of the the um, you know the simple guide to what Common Core is and why it's such an important thing that teachers have to plan around. Well, uh, what what a lot of people know about Common Core is it, is it, uh, on the math side is that it's a, a some new way to do math. Uh, we, we don't know a lot about that, but on on the on the English language arts side, uh, essentially it's a framework for uh, what students uh, should be able to do by the end of particular grades and by the end of high school or uh, or whatever grade. Um, uh, and uh, sort of a guide of what uh, teachers should focus on so that students are able to do those things. And it's divided up into uh, reading literature, uh, reading informational texts, speaking and listening, uh, uh, writing standards, and language standards. And I would assume, and you know, in talking with um, a lot of my friends who are K twelve teachers and and other guests that have been on the podcast, one of the arts of being a teacher now is figuring out how to cover what is required in the core, mm -hmm. while at the same time interjecting your own culture and your own personality into your classroom. Is that a pretty fair way of describing sort of the where teaching is at right now relative to the core standards? Yeah, it's it's a big long list to get through, and one of the aims of this text. Um, was to demonstrate how, um, even though it's a lot of material to get through, uh, everything bleeds together and should in an authentic uh, unit of study. So our goal is we are English teachers at secondary level. Um, I also teach at a junior college. Um, it is a literature-based classroom. That does not exclude the idea of um, authentically bringing in informational texts and research and uh, chances for students to write, it should all be in the mix all the time. So one of the things Common Core did was create this sort of um, uh, false sense of uh, now we're doing our research unit and all else stops <laughs> until we have ticked all these boxes. <clears throat> And unfortunately, uh, we've seen districts across the country sort of embrace that because it's the most easily understood, most uh, easy to make sure everyone's doing all the things they're supposed to do. 
But what is lost there is uh, a dynamic lessons where students understand that it all works together all the time, informational texts and literary texts and um, form and structure and style and their own reading, writing and thinking and, and being able to talk about it. It should all be in the soup all the time. Okay. So that's been sort of our mission since Common Core rolled out, uh, providing teachers templates, not mandates, but templates of uh, how we do it with our students and how we hope they can do it with theirs. Liz, in the, in the preface of, of your book, you, uh, one of you or both of you wrote about a workshop that you were facilitating for teachers in California where you asked them, I'm paraphrasing, to identify topics that they wanted to discuss with their students. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. What were examples of some of the topics that the teachers you were working with said we would really like to have the opportunity to discuss with their students? Sure. There were issues of race. It was February 2020. Um, they said uh, that COVID sounds bad, um, whatever's about to happen there. It was um, school shootings. It was <clears throat> um, issues of gender identity, um, discrimination, um, uh, uh, socioeconomic disparities, um, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and it was a big, long list, climate change, um, all, all sorts of stuff. And so we started there. Uh, and, and then from, from that point came up with uh, sort of a way to demonstrate how um, books that already existed in our book rooms, even though we were all from different districts, everybody had different budgets. Um, there was stuff already there that spoke thematically and universally to issues that we were wrestling with today, not just as teachers, but as people in this world, this sort of uh, 24-hour news cycle world that can be very overwhelming and sort of uh, daunting for sure, um, that the literature, uh, though I hope people add in books all the time, but um, that there's always a chance to uh, look at what's already there and make it work for what's happening today. It, Bill, is it is it was it your perception? Is it your perception that the way that the core is sort of enacted in various districts created a perception on the part of teachers that it was not necessarily easy or maybe even possible um, to be able to have those authentic discussions about the social issues that are part of our contemporary culture while, while at the same time staying true to the standards. I mean, I know that you all try to combat that with your book, but right. do you feel like that was an endemic perception going into your, your right reason for writing the book? Yeah, I think, I think the Common Core led to a, a, a few misperceptions. Uh, one being that, 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 that informational reading and, and reading literary text was this separate set of skills uh, that should be uh, treated separately and taught separately. Um, and, uh, and, and, and what, what re really happened is uh, then they developed tests to go along with the common core standardized testing. A lot of the standardized testing focused on informational text, And then that led to um, a push to, to teach more informational text. Um, and so um, I think that, uh, and, and, and like what you're talking about. So, so then, and then also you were to teach, uh, uh, fiction as in a, in a vacuum, right. Uh, fiction or drama or poetry, uh, as its own set of skills. Uh, we think, what we think is that, uh, one way to do it is to have an informational text unit and then a literary unit and then a, uh, a speaking and listening unit. But, but, but another way to do it would be to take a really great 
um, work of literature that uh, sort of speaks to some universal truths and uh, sort of build everything around it and use that to, to meet all of the standards, the speaking and listening standards and the uh, writing standards and the informational text standards and, and uh, as well as literary standards. For example, take something like the memoir Night, where students are uh, reading it um, through a literary lens where they're, they're, they're analyzing the authorial choices in the text itself, but then they're also uh, naturally doing research on the Holocaust. But then they're also looking at what's happening in our world today with the Rohingya and the Uyghur and, um, or the um, Armenian genocide and, and that coming back into the news. Um, you know, all that stuff just could be blended together. It just felt so weird to keep going to professional developments and department meetings where someone would say, there's a mandate, we've got to do our nonfiction diagnostic, here's a one-page excerpt from an instruction manual, and then your phone is buzzing with the Times alerts and the sky is falling every day, Um, and to act as if there was no natural connection built in or being emphasized about why you want students to deal with nonfiction. And the reason you want them to do that is the big wide world is waiting for them. And, and we don't want them to be hoodwinked. We want them to be able to tell what a good source is and what a half told story is. And um, if there's a puppet on a string, who's, who's manipulating the strings up there, you want them when they leave us and they're just citizens of our nation, you want an informed public who can recognize that stuff. There was a total disjoint and it just got more and more infuriating because it was clearly a pressing issue um, at, a, at a national level. Um, for instance, I was teaching uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and we were talking about the literature of that and all the literary stuff. One of the themes we were talking about was the abuse of power. You know, does power go to one's head? What is too much power over another individual do? And then George Floyd was killed. It would have been ludicrous not to draw students' attention to it and not to honor the fact that they saw a connection to it. Um, It happened in real time during the teaching of that unit. So the unit had to be stopped reimagined and that had to be brought into it because we just saw a real life example of a variation of what we were discussing in this book from decades ago. Um, It was still resonating in the news for students and me at the same time. I I think it's really interesting because as I went through and, and was looking at the different lesson plans surrounding the uh, literature that you identified in each of the chapters, you did a brilliant job, I thought, of trying to weave in students' lived experiences with, um, you know, nonfiction writing. And and it strikes me as you were just talking about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and how that raises dialogue about how we stigmatize and treat mental health issues. Wouldn't it be so interesting to have students reading that and then talking about the Simone Biles discussion about mental health issues for athletes right now. I mean, I just think it it raises all kinds of really interesting connections that students can relate to. Absolutely. And what about like if they could timestamp knee-jerk reactions and then once people had time to process and then once she got to respond, you know, what gets the headline and where people immediately go towards 
um, weak, strong, winner, loser, this weird duality that we insist upon deciding on right mm -hmm. away. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. In real time, they were watching something on their Twitter feed get more complicated and more humanized. And there's so much there all the time, every day that I yeah, hope that's, you start paying attention to. That's really interesting because that was certainly something um, that my family was talking about as that was unfolding is how the narrative you know, constantly, it was an incomplete narrative all the way along because as time would come out and you'd hear a little bit more, the narrative changed. And, um, and that's really, um, interesting. I want to go back to this topic of, um, integrating literature with informational text. There's another, um, in chapter eight of the book where you're talking about Romeo and Juliet, um, you bring in a data, um, uh, tables. Um, and, I thought that was a really interesting juxtaposition because, of course, reading data tables and that type of scientific literature is certainly a type of informational text. Um, but can you talk about that example and how you connect the data that were presented in the book back to the theme of Romeo and Juliet? I think that will give listeners an idea of how it is that you are sort of bringing the intertextuality of these different types of readings together. Absolutely. Yeah, I think... Um... Uh, what the tables were um, general in, uh, overall, they were uh, looking at um, uh, basically the idea of it was um, the danger of being young. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, the, what can you turn to that? Um, so it's 128 is the yeah. Sort of so that it's, um, yeah. Uh, rates for homicide, suicide, and firearm related deaths uh, of youths ages 15 to 19. Um, rates for homicide, suicide, and firearm related deaths um, by gender, uh, etc. Uh, you know what you see in the book is you see these uh, these young people, all of them: Romeo, Tybalt, Mercutio. Um, you know they're uh, they're teenagers, and um, they're in these situations uh, that are so volatile and and so deadly, and um, and that happens so fast. And you can sort of imagine, like, gosh, if they if they had lived through those moments, you know, if, and, and been able to look back at them 30 years later, they would have wondered what, what it was all about. Yeah. Um, um, but there is a, but, but for them in those situations, there's a, there's a danger there. And there's, um, do you want to, yeah, we, uh, and I'm sure this is true for whatever classroom you're in, whatever age level you're in, but in our title one classroom full of teenagers, if I ask, has anybody buried a peer? Has anybody um, loved somebody and lost somebody too young? A lot of them raise their hand. Uh, and this commonality comes about that everybody or too darn many of my students have been in the position of losing another teen to a violent interaction that was a very important instance that day, but would have aged into not a very big deal at all, but they're still dead. So we talk about Romeo and Juliet. And I mean, every English teacher listening knows, right? You're going to talk about the time motif and the ticking clock of it all. And was it true love or were they just stupid? And my position is, well, does it matter? It's very real to them at the time and lives are on the line at the time. So whether it's true love or lust, it, it all goes, it 
we should shunt all of that aside because when you are young and impetuous and that is real, sometimes there's bodies on the ground at the end. Um, and this idea of passion in the text, it's always sort of conveyed as that great romance, but my students understand the sort of excitement of teenage love, but they also understand the excitement of teenage violence and how it's can be rather enrapturing for people they know. And sometimes the consequences are the worst. And we've been in it long enough that we've gone to some of those services now and beyond the tragedy of it, there, the, how avoidable it was with a little time and distance is a loss upon the loss. And, uh, Kids who never thought they would like Shakespeare jump right on board because that resonates deeply with them really quickly. And the idea that this pattern of, you know, they have funny names and um, mm -hmm. they they speak in a way that may frustrate you initially. But but they understand Tybalt and Mercutio not being able to shut their mouths and getting to a point where um, somebody takes it a little too far and there's no go backs. They get that in a very real way. Yeah. So Shakespeare d does this great job of presenting this dichotomy of uh, the, the danger of uh, intense passion and the danger of intense love. And that's all there. And of course, that's that's apparent. But then this is just a whole other way of layering something that's maybe relevant to their own lives onto that. Mm -hmm. Seems to work pretty well. Well, I mean, uh, you know, obviously, um, one of the benefits is for students to be able to um, extract meaning from the literary text and then compare that to the same meaning that they extract from the um, the informational text mm -hmm. and then connect that with their own lived experience. I mean, that's it's really creating a triangle of connection there that is super important, not only for the student to give meaning to the literary text that you as an English teacher are hoping that they learn, but then also to see how that theme that was written by Shakespeare still carries through, you know, in today's society. I think that's, you know, really essential for connected learning. Yeah. Yeah. What I love that unit. It, it talks about the tragedy of growing up. And mm -hmm. um, every time I bring that up with a class, uh, it really kind of punches them in the gut and resonates with them. It's this necessary thing that has to happen. And if it doesn't happen, something has gone wrong. But it is tragic when uh, you have to sort of put childhood aside and you're entering the adult world for better or worse. And it well, is not, not the idea. I mean, I don't want to age the two of you, but I'm 52 years old. And, and you know, the kids are, my, my daughter grew up much more quickly than I did. I mean, you know, I was still riding my bicycle around my neighborhood until the streetlights came on. And, and, you know, that's not the way, even in small town America, that, that most kids have a lived experience right now. They just grow up right. quicker and have to be more concerned about that. Um, I want to go through a couple other examples that really stuck out to me. So in one of the chapters, um, you discuss pairing animal farm and, and, um, 1984 to discuss themes of authoritarianism. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that one of the activities for that pairing that you all wrote about was to have students create propaganda posters. Can you talk about that activity and what it is that you're trying to accomplish in allowing the students to use their creativity to do something that maybe we don't want them to do, but to use that as a vehicle for learning? Yeah. Uh, uh, anytime we can get creative and make posters, I, I love doing that. I can't 
wait now that we're out of distance learning and back in the classroom. Um, I keep hounding Liz. We got to buy a poster paper. I can't <laughs> get back to making posters, put them on the wall. Um, but yeah, um, uh, you know, uh, you use, we use Animal Farm as a vehicle to study um, the Russian Revolution, um, how Stalin got into power, how he stayed in power. Part of that is understanding propaganda, different types of propaganda. Um, and then the best way to show their understanding of that propaganda is to create propaganda. Um, and, and that's the purpose of that part of the unit. And then when we take it to 1984, we, we see a, a fictionalized, another fictionalized version, um, uh, same author, but very different approach. Um, uh, and we see that, that propaganda and how it works. And then, and then the end of that is you apply that to uh, authoritarianism in our world today. Uh, and, um, you know, um, and there's a, there's a strong list of, of leaders you can look at around the world who, um, we can compare with, um, big brother and, and, um, snowball. Not, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, you want to jump? Yeah, the, yeah. It was, we keep talking about it when you're looking at your phone. Um, we'll see a meme that was probably made by some troll in a different country and it's straight propaganda. And we'll turn to each other and say, the chocolate ration has been increased this month. You know, it's straight Orwellian <laughs> stuff. Right. And we want the students to uh, be aware of it. It's been taught in high schools forever, but talk about a text that speaks to a moment in a way that needs to be um, honored and truthful. It absolutely does. This idea of your telescreen that you're holding in front of you is feeding you information based on what it wants you to do and behave. Um, I don't know if we're getting rid of telescreens, but I really hope students understand when they're yeah. getting instructions. You know, it's, it's interesting. It strikes me. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, as a, as a uh, media um educator. I mean, obviously one of my concerns and the concerns of my faculty is, is continuing the fight to try to have students become more self-aware of the media that they are consuming. And, you know, just the, the messages, both appropriate and inappropriate that are parts of that media consumption. I, when you said that, um, I remember this probably doesn't rise to the ranks of the canons of literary, um, uh, text, but the, the science fiction writer, Robert Heinlein, and I don't remember which of his books it was now, but had a discussion of what he called the nets. Um, but it was a, it was a, his description of how, what is essentially the internet as we know it now can be used to sway publics, to go to war and to engage in genocidal practices. Um, maybe it was stranger in a strange land, but, um, Anyway, I, I just thought, I think that anything we can do to point students' minds towards being critical of what it is that they're consuming on social media is, of course, completely necessary. Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. Um, one of the other um, things that I wanted to, uh, one of the other examples that I wanted to um, have you all talk about, um, and I'm not sure which of you did this in your classroom or if both of you did, but it was in the chapter on The Handmaid's Tale. You discussed an approach to teaching that unit where you subdivided students, uh, male and female. You used different pronouns to refer to them in the classroom. You gave different rules for how a quiz was given out. Can you recount that story and use that as, as a way of 
illustrating how the handmaid's tale you know becomes a, a, a tool for teaching gender inequality or sure really- yeah that was uh i that was me and i loved it um I had sent the students home with it and they had to get through chapter one or, or whatever. But by the time they came back, I met them at the door, the tables were divided, you know, half on one side, half on the other. And I instructed uh, girls to sit on one side and young, the young men or the gentlemen to sit on the other side. Um, and once everybody was seated, uh, we did a quiz. I handed it to the, gentlemen first and said as soon as they get their paper they can begin i handed it to the girls last and told them to wait for me uh for the okay so it would be fair they took the quiz um nobody said anything yet (laughs) at all uh afterwards they all switched papers and they were marking their papers but the desks were separated so uh girls were grading girls boys were grading boys um I told the boys it was out of 10 points or the gentlemen, it was out of 10 points for the girls. It was out of a hundred points. Um, and while they were taking the quiz, I was walking the boys side of the room and sort of whispering, are you sure about this one? Do you want to change that? Didn't do that for the girls at all. Um, and at this point, these are students who know me and I hope kind of love me a little bit. And, and the girls are fuming and they're so smart. But nobody on either side is saying anything. Um, I collect the papers and I'm holding them and I ask if they have any questions about the chapter. People on both sides raise their hands, but I'm only calling on the the gents. And at one point, uh, a young man who's, you know, a gentleman and a scholar, good kid, raises his hand and he says, what are you doing? Something's weird. Why aren't you calling on the girls? And I used proximity, right? That old chestnut of teaching and tapped his table. And I said, don't worry about it, bud. I've got it. But thank you so much for your question. I really appreciate it. I built him up. And then the girls were going crazy. It went on for over, I was just under 30 minutes. And then I was getting a bit sick to my stomach mm-hmm. because the girls never said a thing. They just took it, which was the point but remained alarming. So when I kind of said, okay, all done, what did you notice? Oh man, they had the list. You know, how come we're girls? How come they get to be gentlemen? How come you're not calling on us? Uh, One of my students who is a a girl said, um, they probably didn't even read the chapter. We read the chapter. We can talk to you about it, you know? Um, And they were aghast, but I had to counter with, then why did nobody say anything? You all did it. Why are you obeying a clearly unjust system? And somebody said, because you're the teacher. And the question then has to be, well, is that a good enough reason to to be silent? Are you being passive or are you being complicit right now? And the young boy who had said, well, I did say something. And uh, it had to become a conversation of, yeah. So I know you feel good because you did that, but you sure didn't fight. You sure didn't stand up and cross to the other side of the room. You didn't say, um, I don't want that grade. It's not fair. Um, All you did was um, get shut down pleasantly and move on with your day. So it introduced to them right away on day one of the unit 
how slippery these things are. When we're talking about injustice, especially when a group is being othered, when a group is being um, mistreated, it is uncannily and uncomfortably easy to feel real bad about it inside and shut up about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, that's, and that we're all sort of guilty of that on a big scale or on a minor scale. Every one of those kids um, was at best passive and at worst complicit in it because, because it was transactional. Mm -hmm. I was seen as the authority figure and they wanted something out of me. So they were all going to go along with a system that was wrong. And that was day one of handmaids. So when we ask ourselves, how do we get into these dystopias, right? Um, Orwell sort of presents one path. Um, uh, Atwood suggests it's in the little things that you let go by until they're not so little anymore, but so much has gone by, it's hard to dig your heels in. The, the, the line in the sand gets... Um, easier and easier and easier to blow away. So uh, that's where we started, that the little things matter because they become the big things if you're not careful. And we all do it all the time. Yeah. Which of, which of course would be also a great um, way to connect in microaggression of any type, you know, to the, to the dialogue. Bill, your book is titled A Sea of Troubles. Can you give context on why, what that title represents and why you selected it? Uh, it is a, uh, well, it's our second book. Our first book was uh, called Method to the Madness, which is sort of a, a paraphrased allusion to Hamlet, to something um, Polonius says in Hamlet. Uh, and a, a Sea of Troubles is, is more of a direct um, quotation from To Be or Not to Be. Um, and it came to mind just because it seemed like we were in one uh, <laughs> at the time when we were thinking of this book, uh, the idea was, uh, seemed like, um, those, uh, notifications Liz mentioned earlier that just kept coming and coming and coming, um, weren't stopping. And, uh, as teachers, uh, we, we, you know, we were working on a kind of an idea for a second book. We had another, something else that the editor, um, kind of sent back, wasn't interested in, but then this idea came along that like, what if, what if we use this literature we love teaching to, um, and we'd already kind of been doing this, this in the classroom, use it to um, to fight back against this sea of troubles. And um, that's that's where the idea came from. Yeah, I mean, during, during the time that you wrote the book, um, you had a pandemic, you had um, all of the uh, all of the racial um, violence against black people that happened. Mm -hmm. um, you had the presidential election. I mean, all kinds of things were just going on as you were writing this book. I mean, you know, with the ideas that you have in this book, as you come out of, or you get ready for the new school year, um, I think all of us are thinking we can't just do it the same way that we always have. Yeah. I mean, right. we have to, we have to elevate the discussion with our students because we need it and they deserve it. Exactly. Exactly yeah. that. It, it, it just felt so silly to um, be teaching them on Zoom um, about uh, soliloquy structure as they're food insecure. And as we're in California, you know, the sky is raining down ash from wildfires and be like, did you do your homework? I mean, it was just absurd. It just got yeah. through the looking glass silly. Um, so... I think it's high time. Um, 
as teachers, we were real snobby for a real long time about these informational nonfiction standards. It's like, but literature, man, you can't, you can get there through literature. Let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, this to us made the most sense foundationally as a way to honor students and their time and what they're up against. Mm -hmm. Um, the world is out there. They are aware of it and, uh, and they're going to have to encounter it. I, I hope it doesn't sound doom and gloomy because I, I feel so hopeful when I think of our students, all of our students co collectively, our students. Um, I've never met a group of students that I haven't just thought, well, yeah, sure. They can save the world. Look at how wonderful they are. So, um, but it, it definitely seemed like it was an insult to all of our realities and all of our sort of shared trauma at this point mm -hmm. to keep giving them the one page excerpt from the Yosemite National Park uh, hiking guide and say, this is what an informational text is. Mm -hmm. We had bigger fish to fry and it was time to uh, shake up the kitchen. So. As both of you, um, you know, think about enacting um, and you've been enacting them these, these, lesson plans around around these different texts going back to that comment that you just made liz about you know being hopeful you know what is your hope that as you have these discussions with your students they see these connections between the literary text the informational text in their lives wh what do you see as being the promise that you know you start to have light bulbs come on i mean can, can you talk through you know the 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 better future that could happen if we started to embrace this philosophy of you know, connecting all of these things together like this? Sure. I mean, it's a big question, but yeah. um, the book is written, generally speaking, through the lens of um, examining otherness, mm -hmm. uh, how societies across time and space have othered uh, subgroups within that society. And when we talk about uh, that concept of an in-group and an out-group and sort of a hierarchy of access they have experienced microcosms of that just by being children. They've all sat at a lunch table or been chosen for the team or what have you. So they understand it at a personal visceral level. And then being able to apply it to things like redlining housing districts, um, where the documentation may have been written in the 1930s where we live, but they're a few generations into inheriting those same neighborhoods. Um, it didn't disappear um, when we got rid of redlining. There's generational inheritance here, right? When they can start connecting the dots and having language for what they see, what they have experienced themselves, and what they have propagated onto others sometimes, only when you understand the pattern. Is there a chance to break the pattern? I hope. So when we're looking at Shylock raging against the machine and saying, does not a Jew bleed? It's not that far away from uh, Walter's big speech in a raisin in the sun. And it's not that far away from talking about uh, breaking um, systemic generational, um, legislation that has kept people in poverty. There's, there's a through line there. So now that they can connect those dots, the next plan is what systems do we put in place? What needs to change? So 
this is the end point. We end the book with um, a discussion of the Parkland students and uh, President Obama talking about how tragic it is that they were thrust into this um, most terrible adult version of the world, um, children inheriting the consequences of the adults around them. But the hope that within that tragedy, they banded together and demanded something change and um, have worked together as a team um, to change that, that sea of troubles is gobsmacking, isn't it? I mean, it's just, uh, it makes it the best job in the world to do all we can so that they feel empowered to make sure as soon as possible, it never happens again. On a practical matter, Bill, um, as you pick up the book and, and you peruse the table of contents, essentially each of the chapters presents sort of a set of lessons around um, certain tests. Do you want to describe sort of why teachers might find this immediately practical, even as they're doing lesson prep for the upcoming school year? Yeah. So um, uh, on one level, uh, we think that these are books that are pretty commonly taught uh, in um, high school classrooms. Uh, they're probably the books that are available in the textbook room uh, at a lot of secondary schools. Um, at, but then uh, beyond that, if, if you teach different books, our hope is that um, the the stuff that's the, the, the strategies we're giving, the kind of lessons, just the sort of ideas that we're presenting can be applied to whatever book you happen to be teaching, if it's not one of these specific books. Absolutely. Yeah. And Elizabeth, do you see um, audiences for your book that would extend beyond um, teachers of literature? I hope so. Um, we've uh, we're marketing mostly to the high school and college level, but, um, I, I hope as many people who are sort of worried about education and what it means, um, are taking a look at it. We've had some parents look at it recently and, um, I, I think it helps demystify what common core is and what it could be for their student and, uh, how they could support their student with it, that, uh, it's not, or it certainly shouldn't be a series of tasks that one checks off from a list, but that the idea is by the end of a course of study, you're a well-rounded, well-spoken, critical thinker, uh, ready to go out there uh, in the world and, and take it on for better or worse. So anybody interested in the education of, of uh, school children right now, I hope checks it out. Absolutely. Is there anything that I haven't asked that either of you um, really wanted to talk about and want to get in before we end? Oh, the only thing I would say is um, to anybody listening and thank you to everybody who listened. Um, it has been our experience and not just our wish, but certainly our experience that uh, literature remains transformational to students. And so if you're in a district where um, they're taking the path of least resistance and teaching to a test, or if they're lowering the bar of expectation based on what they think they know about their students to, um, to rage against that and hold the line and believe that our students uh, deserve the best level instruction and that complexity uh, is not a bad thing to be avoided, but a fun thing and an important thing to uh, to show students and ultimately 
I've never met a kid who couldn't handle it. And I hope that's everybody else's experience too. I want to congratulate both of you on the book. I thought it was extremely useful. I really loved how um, your creativity as educators came through in designing really practical and meaningful lessons around each of the texts. And I, you know, what struck me was the comment that I made when we opened the discussion that you can teach to the core standards, but do so in a way that brings your personality out and also confronts the issues that students want to talk about and that we need to talk about. So congratulations on a great, um, a great publication. Thank you very Thank much. You so Thank much. you. My guests today were Elizabeth and Bill James, who are high school teachers in Stockton, California. They are authors of the recently released book, A Sea of Troubles, pairing literary and informational texts to address social inequality. A link to the book, published by Roman Littlefield in 2021, is in the text accompanying this podcast, and we certainly encourage you to check it out. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org slash listen. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and of course, NPR One. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply search for Teaching Matters Podcast in Facebook and send us a message. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth. We hope you have a great day.